From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello, and welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Hannah Cunningham. And I'm Dylan Hall. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have a popular episode from our archives for you, where economist Jeff Rubin and environmentalist David Suzuki talk about the end of growth. But first, some environmental news headlines. In France, the environment minister, Nicolas Hulot, has quit his office publicly on a breakfast radio show. He explains that he was leaving the government over, quote, an accumulation of disappointments, end quote, with its inability to tackle climate change, defend biodiversity, reduce dependency on nuclear power, and address other environmental threats. Hulot said, quote, I can't lie to myself anymore. I don't want to create the illusion that we're facing up to it, end quote. As a celebrity environmentalist and popular former TV show host, this is a huge public blow to the Macron government, seriously calling into question their environmental credibility and their attempts to tread a centrist line that appeases everyone, environmentalists, workers, and business elites. Moving closer to home, in Canada, as you may have heard, on August 30th, the Federal Court of Appeal rejected the federal government's approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project concluding that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet failed in its legal duty to adequately consult First Nations. According to Justice Eleanor Dawson, quote, Canada was obliged to do more than passively hear and receive the real concerns of the Indigenous applicants, end quote. This was hailed as a victory by environmental and Indigenous activists and the BC government, but this does not mean the pipeline won't be built. It means greater delay and expense, but despite this, the federal government is still planning to purchase the project from Texas owner Kinder Morgan for $4.5 billion, and will proceed to attempt to address all of the problems laid out in the Federal Court of Appeals ruling. Lastly, the story that inspired our archive choice this week. Have you ever heard of federal cabinet committees? Don't be surprised if you haven't. In the operations of the federal government, Cabinet committees are influential, often overlooked gatherings behind closed doors, where ministers decide on how to push the government's agenda forward, and all briefings are exempt from freedom of information requests. Last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau removed climate change from the name of the Environment, Climate Change, and Energy Cabinet Committee, renaming it the Environment and Clean Growth Committee. According to Trudeau's office, it reflects the government's commitment to addressing climate change through growing the economy. This optimistic belief in the possibility of addressing climate change by growing the economy shows that our archive is still as timely as ever. We go back to 2012 to listen to Tara and former Hamdi Asawi speaking with Canadian icon David Suzuki and former CIBC chief economist Jeff Rubin about Rubin's book, The End of Growth. Now, depending on where you stand, this might seem like a regular marriage of heaven and hell. But as you're about to find out, the road of excess doesn't always lead to the palace of virtue. I'm Hamdi Asawi, and here's my conversation with David Suzuki and Jeff Rubin. Gentlemen, welcome and hello. It's our pleasure to be here. Some of us might find it odd that an environmentalist and an economist are teaming up like this. How did the idea for this tour come about? Well, I think I can take responsibility for that. I saw that, uh, well, I was thrilled to read Jeff's first book. And uh, then I saw that he was going on tour with his second book. And I called his publisher and asked if I could tag along. Oh, really? And it's really, you know, uh, a surprise to have 
two people from what is widely regarded as uh, different, totally different areas. But people forget that the word economy has got an eco in it, in the same way that ecology does. And that eco refers to uh, the Greek word, or comes from the Greek word ekos, which means household or domain. Mm -hmm. Well, our domain, our household, is the biosphere, the zone of air, water, and land where, where all life exists. Ecologists study the conditions and the principles, the, uh, the laws that regulate sustainability, basically. Economics is the management of household. And the problem we have is that economists tend to forget that there is an eco in their, in their word and just bash ahead as if they're everything. <laughs> so I've said for years we've got to put the eco back into economics. Right. Now, the interesting thing to me is that on purely economic grounds, Jeff is showing that there is uh, an end to growth, and ecologists have been calling for an end to growth for a long time. But on economic terms, he's got a very interesting story that's got nothing to do with environmental issues in the long run, even though we will benefit enormously. Over to you. Well, um, the subtitle of my book is, But Is That All Bad? Mm -hmm. And by the metrics of my profession, the end of growth is unequivocally bad, if not outright apocalyptic, like the way that we measure our economic well-being, income per capita, GDP per capita, consumption per capita. These are all measurements intrinsically related to growth. And when you stop growing, all of these metrics will show you to be a lot poorer. But maybe, maybe our well-being is more than simply the sum of what we consume. Um, maybe there are some silver linings here. And I ended up, the last chapter of my book was, Will Triple-Digit Oil Prices Save the World? Looking at the relationship between triple-digit oil prices and coal prices, for that matter, economic growth and carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when the economy falters, as David well knows, environmental concerns and policies get shifted to the back seat, if not the trunk, I point out that in 2009, global emissions fell because guess what Trump's policy, the performance of the economy. So I wanted, you know, to talk a little bit about the silver lining of this story. And the silver lining of this story is that triple digit oil prices, whether we want to or not, is going to take us to some pretty green places. But I'm not really the person to talk about green places, but the guy sitting next to me is. So hence the intersection of the two ecos. From where you two stand, what are some of the economic and environmental concerns facing us right now? Okay, well, I'll tell you, as an economist, what doesn't make sense to me. We're trying to step on the gas when there's nothing left in the tank. Because, you know, to saying that our economies can't grow like they used to, that's not a politically acceptable thing because the electorate's not prepared to accept that. So our governments will tell our economic managers, the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve Board, the Department of Finance, keep stimulating, keep run a bigger deficit, print more money. And guess what? Zero interest rates and huge budget deficits, they're not a substitute for cheap oil. I mean, you can tell the disconnect when the governor of the Bank of Canada, Mark Carney, keeps interest rates near zero and then warns you not to borrow. I mean, what the hell are you supposed to yeah. do when interest rates are... But what, what it is, is the traditional measures that we're using to stimulate our economy are no longer working because what's holding back the economy is not some credit crunch. It's not that interest rates are too high. What's holding back the economy is that the fuel that it runs on is now 
well beyond our reach. Mm-hmm. Triple digit, you know, huge budget deficits, zero interest rates. Not only are they not a substitute for cheap oil, but they're going to make the adjustment even more difficult. That zero interest rates just create distortions like the subprime mortgage market. And yesterday's bailout is, to, is today's cutback as people in Spain and Greece are already finding out, and probably people in America will soon find out. And from an environmental perspective? Well, I mean, the, the overriding crisis we face now is that uh, we have passed the, the levels of carbon in the atmosphere that scientists tell us um, are, are, are needed to aim at for if we're not to have total climate chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Hansen uh, said that if we go above 350 parts per million of, of carbon, that at that point then all hell breaks loose. We're on our way to a much higher rise of temperature than two degrees. Just for your information, this July 2018, we actually hit 408.71 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. You're listening to Terra Informa, broadcasting from CJSR 88.5 studios on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. Indeed, what it looks like is we're on our way to six degrees. Six degrees is, uh, to me, unimaginable. The, we're already feeling the effects of, of a one degree rise, but we're at, uh, he said at 350 parts, that's the, the limit. So we're, we're carrying out an experiment. Nobody knows really what the long-term consequences will be, but we're carrying out this catastrophic experiment. And uh, this bringing the economy, I, I think the economy is going to have to go into, into free dive, and, and uh, what we're seeing in Canada is this kind of, I don't know why it is, that Canada seems to be immune, at least boasting that our economy is robust compared to the rest of Europe and, and the United States. But if we start to go into a real uh, drop, as we saw in 2008, um, then I think maybe there's an opportunity to start looking at the ecological impact as well and, and redesign the economy, internalize what we currently externalize. Economics commonly refers to things like forests and watersheds as externalities, but now they're being considered for their ecological worth. Is this new, or have people always known it but failed to acknowledge it? I think for most of human existence, we knew that nature was the very source of our survival and well-being. Everybody knew that. Mm -hmm. And even after the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, you well know farmers understand that weather, climate, seasons, they darn well affect us. I was just pointing out today coming here that there are trees along the the road coming up from the valley. They're all dead. So I said to our, our host, what's happening to your trees? And she said, a drought. You've had a drought and all these trees are dying. I mean, to me, looking at it, it looks like a catastrophic death going along that road. Farmers understand very well that the amount of snow you get in the winter is directly related to how much moisture is in the soil in in the summer. They know that insects are important for pollinating flowering plants. They understand that, you know, certain plants, species, and tree species take nitrogen and make fertilizer in the soil. So I believe that for most of human existence... We've understood that nature was an, an absolutely important part of our lives. 85% of us in Canada now live in big cities. And in a big city, it's very easy to think, well, you know, we've got parks out there. We can, it's three hours to drive to Jasper and we can play and camp. Uh, who needs nature? In a city, your most, your highest priority is your job because you need your job to make the money to buy the things that you want. Mm-hmm. And so the, Focus goes away from nature. We just forget 
And we think that because we live in an urban environment, we, you know, we create our, our surroundings, we don't need nature. And we forget that something like air or water or soil that gives us our food, these are pretty darn critical. And maybe they're far more important than uh, economic things. Right. Well, you see, um, externalities never get priced in, or it's very difficult to price in. And we don't want to rely on externalities. But when we shut off the engine of economic growth, we don't have to rely on the pricing of externalities because all of a sudden there's a whole chain reaction of events that, that follow from that. You know, when I get back to, you know, 2009, all around the world, global emissions fell even though the Waxman-Markey climate change bill died on the Senate floor, and that was pretty well mirrored all around the world. And, you know, for envi- you know what I'm saying is that, that, that the slowdown in economic growth takes the decisions out of our hands and out of our policymakers' hands, and maybe environmentalists would say that's a good thing because, you know, when, when faced with the choice of consume now and pay later— <laughs> We're always going to go consume now, mm-hmm. no matter what the costs are of paying later, either economic or ecological. But maybe we won't have the choice. And, and as I argued in my book, triple-digit oil prices is going to take us to some very green places. And, you know, that's a particularly interesting concept here because Alberta, Edmonton, is, you know, not far from what the International Energy Agency considers to be the third largest oil reserve in the world. And it, along with the largest oil reserve in the world, the Orinoco Heavy Oil Belt, which is also a tar sands, these things are not ecologically pretty. And the world is now relying more and more on these sources for our energy because conventional sources have long been depleted. You know, the real nemesis for the Alberta tar sands are not the eco-terrorists like the man sitting next to me. (laughs) The real nemesis of the Alberta tar sands is the cost curves that come along with expanded production. Because as we're finding out, as Nexon has found out, and a whole lot of other operators, that as you produce more and more, the costs go up and up because you're going farther and farther under the ground, farther and farther away from your water source. And yes, there's 170 billion barrels of oil in the in the tar sands and there's 270 billion barrels of oil in the Orinoco tar sands. But the problem is that the very prices that we need to pull this oil out of the ground translate into the same prices that cause our oil-consuming economies to keel over and die. So what what's happening now is we oscillate between oil-induced recessions and oil-aborted recoveries. And when you cancel out those cyclical oscillations, what you're looking at is basically a big flat line, or as I say, the end of growth. The two of you working together, I'm just wondering how, like, how have your conversations been on the road, have you like have you have a really lot of fun? To, yeah, <laughs> really fun because you know I've gone through uh, giving a lot of speeches where I ju- I call economics a form of brain damage, <laughs> but you know I've never had a course in economics. I just use common sense, but boy, I've been really getting a terrific education from Jeff, and I finally understood about markets and, and <laughs> pricing. <laughs> it's been a great it's been a great experience, and uh, likewise, I think that we're both teaching each other things about the other eco and. I I think that we're going to come out of this trip 
more knowledgeable about the other side of eco. And I think it's important for both people on the two ecos to realize and have some understanding of the other side of the eco. Is this going to be the birth of a new eco? Well, I, the ecological economics, of course, is a young, young field, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's growing very rapidly. I think that we've got to start coming together, and this kind of unusual pairing, we've got to see much more of. You see, I, I've spent my life fighting, right, fighting against dams, fighting against destroying this forest. We, we're at a state now, we can't afford to have losers. We've all got to be winners, So we've got to come together. And I think the first thing that we do is we leave our vested interests outside the door and we come together and say, look, can we start with some agreement? Can we agree on certain fundamental things? And I would like to present the, uh, the suggestion that we better first recognize that we're animals. And as animals, as mammals, if you don't have clean air, you're dead. You know, if you have polluted air, you're sick. If you don't have clean water, you're dead. And and just go through what are our most fundamental needs. And if you say these earth, air, fire, and water, which is what Native people tell us, are sacred things, then how can you build an economy that uses them as a garbage can? Um, I want to talk about the focus of your tour for a minute, the idea that a sustainable future is possible, but only at the point at which ecology and economics intersect. You touched on this briefly about pairing pairs like this. So can you go into more detail about that? Well, I don't know whether we're coming up with uh, that kind of a solution. I mean, this is our first coming together. We're working out uh, the, the message. But I think what what he's talking about in terms of triple-digit uh, costs for uh, oil is that this is a shock to actually talk about the end of growth. And the oppor- it provides us now with an opportunity then, as Naomi Klein says in, in the shock doctrine, that this is a moment of opportunity to really start examining this economic system and realizing that it is part of the driving uh, force of the destructiveness. And it's got to come back in balance with the eco part of its name. So I think we still have to work out what that economy is going to, to look like. But from my standpoint, the actual floating of the idea that this recession is not going to uh, recover and we're going to go back into a, uh, a roaring e- economic growth, this is uh, a stop that lo- allows us to, to get ideas like mine now considered in the discussions about the new economy. Now, David, you've recently begun to speak to Canadians and the world, not just as a scientist and an environmentalist, but also as an elder. How has this shift changed your perspective? Well, I think uh, there are a number of things. First of all, I I have grandchildren, very young grandchildren, and they've become the total focus of my life. I mean, my my goal in, I mean, I'm one person. I don't have any illusions. I'm going to save the world. But I want to be able to envision on my deathbed that my grandchildren will gather around and I'll be able to look them in the eye and say, Grandpa did the best he could, which is all one one can do. But the thing that I find uh, amazing is that uh, as I age, my testosterone level drops. And my God, you know, when you're not thinking about sex every minute of your life, suddenly you get really smart. I've gotten so much smarter with old age. And no one, I think, you know, uh, the, the kinds of drives we have when you're young and ambitious, uh, you want power, you want money, you want fame. Those things all fall apart and you suddenly see the world in a different way. But I think elders are an absolutely priceless resource. They're the only ones that have lived an entire lifetime. They've got a 
lifetime of experiences, successes, many failures. What the hell have you learned in a lifetime? What have you learned about what really matters? And I believe that elders abrogate their responsibility if they're out in the golf course or sitting on the couch. They've got that responsibility of basically harvesting what they've they've learned, their hard lessons of experiencing a life. Pass those things on to the next generation. So this is the most important phase of my life. You see, one of the uh, amazing aspects of human beings as biological creatures, we're incredibly adaptable. And uh, that adaptability has been a key to our, our success. We've adapted to live very, very uh, comfortably in the high Arctic. We've learned to live in, in steaming jungles, in tropical rainforests, on mountain tops, we, in uh, prairies and, and woodlands. We've learned, we've adapted to live uh, very, very well in different areas. But that adaptability has been a fatality, I think, or a fatal flaw in in today's society. And that's because so much change is going on, and we've discounted the role of elders in our dominant society. And so we don't remember what things once were. And this is a thing Daniel Pauly at UBC has called shifting baselines. If you're constantly shifting your baselines of comparison, then you have no idea how severe your problem is. There was a wonderful movie, a film, called uh, Empty Oceans, Empty Nets. And they had a young woman who was a captain of a, a swordfish boat. And she said, oh, yeah, there are a lot of swordfish here. We go out. He's, she's based in Boston. We go out, and we go up along the coast of Newfoundland. We get lots of swordfish. And they're big ones. I heard some, someone last week caught a 200-pounder. So there's no problem. Then they cut to a guy who must have been 80 years old, and he used to be a sword fisherman. And he said, oh, yeah, we never went more than six or eight miles out of Boston. And anything under 200 pounds, we threw back. But the baseline is shifted, you see. Mm -hmm. So to this young woman who doesn't know what this elder understood, going up to Newfoundland was no big deal. And, uh, yeah, 200 pounder, wow, that's a big swordfish. And this is a problem. What do you, you have a word for that in economic terms. Well, it's called diminishing returns. <laughs> no, 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 there, you had another thing about the shifting oh, comparison, that, uh, you know, like we have a 40-year vision of economics and... And, and how where we're benchmarking. Yeah, yeah benchmarking. Benchmarking, The yeah. benchmark shifts <laughs> to, a, to another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just say a couple of words. Uh, David says that his testosterone levels have dropped. Um, I've been hanging with this guy for the last four days. Listen, I hope my wife doesn't hear this. <laughs> and this guy is a sex magnet because women come all around and want his picture taken. Because and going, they know I'm harmless. Hey, uh, what about, I'm here too. They know I'm harmless. That's <laughs> so talking about adaptation, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a good point because, I mean, we have to adapt our economy as well. And, you know, the way that you adapt to triple-digit oil prices, the way that you try to minimize the impact of triple-digit oil prices on economic activity is to actually do the opposite of what we've been doing, which is to reduce our energy consumption per capita. Mm -hmm. And we all want to believe that the solution to triple-digit oil prices is the discovery of some magical new fuel, always on the supply side. And, you know, I mean, human innovation, human history is the history of innovation, and I'm sure if you give us long enough time, we'll do that. But in the here and now, I mean, triple-digit oil prices isn't something that we're contending with in 30 years, we have to do that right now. And the way that we have to adapt is on the demand side. 
we have to learn to consume less energy. So let me put it in these terms. Like, instead of trying to figure out how to turn cow dung into high-octane fuel, we got to just drive less, okay? <laughs> and that's exactly what triple-digit oil prices will do. And to the extent that we can reduce our energy consumption, that will minimize the impact of triple-digit oil prices. To the extent that we can't, then, then triple-digit oil prices will have the kind of calamitous, apocalyptic uh, impact that it will. But what I'm saying is in the here and now, the adjustment has to be done on the demand side. And you point to places like Denmark that have... Well, yeah. I mean, and Denmark's a very interesting example because Denmark's a country that charges 30 cents per kilowatt hour for power, which would probably be, I'm guessing, three to four times what most folk in Alberta would pay. And it's it's a country that, if you have a V8 engine, will slap 150% surcharge on the price of your car. And, you know, you would think that, oh, with those kind of policies that... Copenhagen is some kind of wasteland and people are lined outside the Canadian and U.S. embassies for visas to come to coal-rich Alberta and Montana where power is cheap, but quite the opposite. (laughs) Surveys after surveys show that Denmark enjoys probably in a state of well-being way higher than North America, that people come from all over around the world to visit places like Copenhagen, that maybe energy consumption per capita is not the be-all and end all of our well-being in Denmark. And, you know, what's really interesting about Denmark is that, that you know, 20% of their power comes from wind. Everybody knows that. What other people don't know is 80% of their power comes from coal. And that's the same percentage that China would have in their grid from coal. So the, the immediate question that pops to your mind is, why isn't Denmark's emissions soaring? Denmark has actually reduced its emissions to below its 1990 level, where China's emissions have now surpassed the United States. And the answer to that is that it's not coal or wind. It doesn't matter whether you get your power from coal or wind. You pay 30 cents per kilowatt hour. And it's it's the energy demand that you kill and destroy with 30 cents per kilowatt hour prices that is the real key to Denmark's success. Now, Denmark doesn't really like to advertise that because they'd rather have you buy one of their wind turbines. Mm-hmm. But the good right. news story is that you don't have to be suited for wind power that anybody can reduce your emissions. You just charge 30 cents per kilowatt hour for power, and lo and behold, people will start consuming a whole lot less power, and lo and behold, you'll be emitting less carbon. And that, I think, is the real message from Denmark's success. Well, that's all the time we have for today. David Suzuki, Jeff Rubin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having us. That was Tara Informer Hamdi Asawi speaking with David Suzuki and Jeff Rubin in 2012 about the book they were both promoting at the time, The End of Growth. We hope you've enjoyed our show this week. If you want to hear more stories like this one, or if you want more information about any of this week's headlines, Check out our website at terrainforma.ca for past episodes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to tara at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney and Shelley Jodouin, for keeping us all afloat during the summer months. Without them, you probably wouldn't have a show to listen to. Thanks. Thanks. We've been your hosts, Dylan Hall and Hannah Cunningham. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Nice. Woo. You're the best.